I'm a writer. I love writers and I coach writers. So it makes sense that I'd interview writers from all areas, blogging, TV, film, songwriting, podcasting, but also the new writers, the first timers that did it, that took the plunge because at one point they heard from someone, you should write a book about that. Tom Henschel is a whole pie of amazingness. He's not only a Juilliard trained actor, but an extremely successful coach, helping leaders in top companies such as Disney, Netflix, Walmart, Amazon, navigate their workplace and their peers and conflict externally and internally. I met Tom early in my coaching career, and then we reconnected recently over our podcasts. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we have so much to talk about with your, you know, incredibly impressive resume, but what I saw on it that I just wanted to mention first is that you raise zebra finches and corn snakes. So my first thought was like, how do you keep the corn snake from eating the zebra finch? But then again, I can go really dark. Well, but they don't live together. Oh, That's, okay. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> So that's the answer to that one. <laughs> the, the zebra finches are outside and the corn snakes are inside. So what 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 is it about that? that, that, that so tell me. I, one of my daughters, my youngest daughter, was a nature person from the time she was very little. She was the kid who would not just collect bugs, but then really like study them. So mm. we ended up with all kinds of animals. And the finches and the snakes are the two that I have chosen to keep since she's gone. Oh, so, yeah, that's I, so great. And do you have names for them? Well, not for the finches, because there are just so many of them, like who can keep track? There's, there's probably 40 in the coop right now. So like, and they're tiny, wow. there's little, so it's like, they're just a blast and they talk all day long. So they're so sweet. It's the music to my life outside. It's just lovely, but I don't name them, but the snakes, of course they have names. Of course. They do. <laughs> That's great. Well, what I love about that is that leaders tend to be overachievers and you work with leaders. And I just thought, you know, do you bring into your coaching aspects that maybe they could bring into their lives to alleviate stress, like a corn snake or like a dog? Oh, you know, it's so interesting. In my coaching, often I know very little about their life outside of work and they know nothing about mine. Oh. We really, we, we have so little time, I mean, we have six months, so that sounds like a lot of time, but it's not, to to do something pretty difficult. And so we get to work and we mm. often don't know each other that well, but sometimes we do. It just depends on the person, depends on the nature of the work. So, what they're willing to share, what they're not willing to share. Some people are open books. Oh no, everybody's willing to share. It's what I choose to focus the conversations on. Usually uh -huh. I come in and go to work. Okay. And and the work keeps us in a particular kind of path that often, you know, whether this person's married or not is irrelevant. Now, okay. often we do, like often, mm -hmm. but often mm -hmm. we don't, you know what I mean? So, and I don't tend to, that's not true. So when I go whole person with someone and we're talking about family issues and we're talking about meditation, we're talking about physical health and well-being. It's not often, but I do it with certain people and clearly that's helpful for them. Yeah. That's not where I tend to go. 
where you tend to go. The podcast, I've listened to several of your episodes and the one that you were focusing on conflict, it was interesting how, and we'll get into the style of your podcast in a minute because it's really unique. You really helped this particular client. And I know these are sort of fictional versions of coaching sessions you've done navigate conflict in a way from her workplace into a situation with her husband. Yes. And that was, that was brilliant. It was really helpful. It was really helpful in that episode. It's certainly not all my episodes, but you know where I actually really learned that from was the book Crucial Conversations that is so good about pulling dating examples and, you know, fight over food in the fridge examples, you know, real kind of just kitchen table stuff that it's so identifiable. It's, I think it's really helpful for people when they can picture it there, you know, picture it in their lives. So yeah, for me, it's like, if there's a model that can work that way, oh, it's so, it's so helpful. It's really, really, it was really, really helpful. Okay. So I have a question and it's long, but I think it could, I think it could open us up to some good conversation or it could just die on the vibe, but but let's, (laughs) let's just, let's just take it for a ride. So you were in Juilliard as an actor and you're also an an award-winning director. So you've dealt with and worked with a lot of writers and creatives. And I always say like, if, when I was in Hollywood, if, if I had had a coach, I probably could have won an Oscar. I surely (laughs) had the drive right? But there were things missing in my belief systems and my addictions and my faulty thinking that really hindered me. So when you were in the entertainment business before coaching, where did you see people that were creatives needing the most direction that they weren't getting? Ooh, well, that assumes that I could see that at that time in my life. And the truth is, Kim, I experienced myself in my acting career as very low on the totem pole, looking up at other people's feet and butts. Uh. I felt I often could not get altitude to find out what people needed or how I could be contributing, or I I was done. I it, that was a mystery to me. Really, what's, what's hilarious to me now, really, truly, when I felt often, I made a living in the business, but I often felt very powerless. Early mm. in my coaching career, I was coaching two division presidents at Warner Brothers. And wow. I thought, I could never have gotten your attention before. And now I come in and you think I'm an expert. This is amazing. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? I mean, because I fell down a little rabbit hole with you and watched a couple of your clips. I think I watched you on Married with Children. You had a little moment there that was great. And then I couldn't find the clips on the Prince of Bel-Air, but it I guess you were on that show for a little bit with Donald Trump. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if yes. that's good. Or that's it was, it was weird. Even then it was weird. I bet. It I was. bet. It was. So when you were on that show and you were seeing, I don't know if you like ever interacted with Will Smith or any people like that. Was it again, that feeling of, I don't really understand what makes these people tick. What I knew at that time, Kim, was that the stars controlled the sets in television. I've worked mostly in television. Right. And television is really, really fast. The directors change every week. But the star, I mean, especially if it's, you know, a star like Will right. Smith. Right. The set takes on the tone of the star. And I was very aware of that. I often, by the way, in the makeup chair in the morning before people 
kind of knew me yet because I was just like a, I was showing up on Tuesday and nobody knew who I was right like right. I was going to walk on the set and I'm like I'm that part <laughs> everybody's like oh here he is here's the guy right so um I would often ask the makeup artist like how's the set oh and they and would they say know. They oh, know. you bet they know. And now again, some will, some are, you know, kind of company people and you're going to get a sanitized version. But a lot of people are like, watch out for this. And I was like, thanks. That's really helpful because I don't know the lay of the land. I'm a stranger. So it's a very different perspective, but it was mm -hmm. interesting to watch. And it was really interesting to watch when sets were unhealthy. Like, right. I, know who, I know who's doing this. You're doing this, right? You could I mean, see it, right? Yeah, and I got to leave. Like, I didn't have to live in that craziness for long, but- Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, some people were in those situations for years. Wow. Yeah, that's really, really hard. I, and sort of like you, it seems like you were a little more aware than me, but I was really blind to how to navigate any kind of conflict in the entertainment industry. And I couldn't get myself out of things either. I would just have to, we would just, the motto was just ride it out. It's only, I worked in films. So the, it's only 60 days, you know, but the end of the 60 days, you need like, you know, three months, three months off. So in terms of understanding the human condition as an actor or as a writer, how is, how did that help you move into development as a coach? Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, it, it's my gift. Mm. I, what, what I'm aware of is that when I was very young, my older brothers and sisters would come to me and say, you tell mom. <laughs> right. And then when you I was in high school, well, I knew how to talk to my mom, right? Like I, I knew it. how to kind of read other people and whatever. In high school, I was, I, I was certainly not handsome and attractive and there wasn't a lot going for me, but I was really good as a listener and as a compassionate listener, I could mm. do that. And that was very attractive, especially to girls. Right. right. Oh, absolutely. I, Still I, is. I've yeah, it still is. I agree. So that whole wiring where I pay attention to how people feel, react, behave, I've been doing that since I'm on the planet. So now to find out that I could get paid for it, like, mm -hmm. oh, how cool. I can bring all that and like people are gonna pay me. That's great. Well, that's interesting for the listener to take in is to Think back, I do this exercise sometimes with people that remember what it is you wanted when you were eight years old, when you were really like un kind of touched by too much. And then ask yourself, what qualities did you have then that you're not tapping into anymore? Or what joy did you have? What did you believe you could be? You know, the, the hairbrush in the shower, you know, singing. So, and a lot of people are stunned and very emotional when they realize what they had. And, and I'm like, it's not too late to bring it back. No kidding. You know? It lives in you, right? It lives in you. And so you saw that you had those skills. So that sort of brings me to my next question. Do you consider yourself a leader? Well, I think leadership is often situational. Mostly I work by myself, so I don't have anything to lead. But during the pandemic, I rebuilt my website and it was a major, major, I mean, the PPP loans paid for it. It was a right. big rebuild and right. I got to lead a team and it was a oh, blast. Like I was like, really great. right. I got to put a team together. I got, it was my project. It was my baby. Nobody knew what was in my head, but me. So it was like, great. I really got to be a leader. It was fantastic. And I don't get that opportunity often. Mm -hmm. um, I'm chairman of the board of a nonprofit. 
that's quite different, but certainly it's a leadership opportunity, but it's quite different. But I think of it always as leadership. Like, what am I doing here as a leader at the moment that's helping or not helping? So right. yeah, I think of it a lot. So we could be leaders in situations that we're not even realizing we're leaders. And I love the website example, because you're right. I read, I did a funnel last year with the PPP loan and had a team for the first time because I work solo as well. And there were days that I was like, I am being super snippy. Like, I don't like how I'm behaving right now. And I'd pause and I'd say to the team, I'm not, I'm not my best self today. I, I'm really, I let, can we, can we, let's start again. And these, mm. I was mostly young people I was working with in their twenties. And they were just like, oh my, like they were blown away by that. They welcomed it, right? They, oh yes. Uh-huh. They did not want to stay in that environment where I was like, what's going on? What's wrong? And I'd see it and I'd go, I don't want to be that person either. You know, mm. so so how would you, def- so, so I would define leadership as, as that, is being able to see yourself and take a step back and, and humbly be willing to, to try again. How would you define leadership for you or for leadership in general as, an, as a concept? Well, I've, I'm careful about, I don't want to cast too big a net, like thinking about general concepts, but for me, I, I think I think about two things all the time, which is what needs to happen next and how okay. can I do that? How can I help facilitate that? What do people need to hear from me? What do I need to tell people? What resources or, you know, whatever, but, mm-hmm. I, but it, it's what's, what's next. Right. So, and that ties into the listening piece because you don't know what's next. If you're constantly that's interesting. talking, that's really interesting. Yeah. Listening. I, I think listening is, um, when people finally get it and when people start to do it, it changes them so deeply. They go like, Oh, I had no idea. (laughs) You know, I mean, it shifts them in a way, but I understand that leaders have a lot to do. Leaders have heavy burdens to carry. And I understand why listening is hard. Yeah. I, I, I sympathize. I totally sympathize. Yeah. I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. So let's talk about your podcast because that's really where you're doing a lot of the majority of your writing and, um, and, and your podcast is called the look and sound of leadership. And you have this interesting angle that I mentioned in the beginning where you take a, a coaching session and you do a fictionalized version on it. And it, and from what I got from it is it's sort of an exceptional way for me as the listener to feel like I'm intimately in that actual situation that the person you're, you're speaking of, you're, you're, you're also performing as them and you're performing as you. How did you come up with this model and take us a little bit through the writing process that you do? Well, the model has evolved. Like, you know, I've been on the air since 2008. And if you go back and listen to those first ones, it's me just talking. It's me telling you what to do. It's me giving you a lesson. And then pretty, I don't know, fairly early after that, I introduced an imaginary client. And often they were three clients. Like, you know, there were these three people and they all had different issues and all that. And that was good. It was effective. But at a certain point, I went like, why don't I stick with one client? You know, like, and so I started a a kind of storytelling that at a certain point was just like, oh, let's just do it all in dialogue. Love it. And so and so that's what it's become is it become entirely dialogue. I said, she said, I said, she said, I said, she said. 
for about nine minutes. And I, that's how it evolved. How many revisions do you do on the I said, she said model? Oh, so it goes through a series of rewrites. So I, I re, you know, I polish it to where I can. Then I send it to some editors, friends of mine who edit it and send it back. And then I do one more rewrite and submit it to my, all the, the team who's going to get it all mounted. And they are really good about looking at it also. Then I see it one more time and I inevitably catch more things like an omitted word or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So it goes through a lot of fine tuning, but not a lot of rewriting. I, I, the only major rewrite is after I get it back from the editors. Okay. Cause I didn't, I didn't hear any like extemporaneous words. I didn't hear a oh, lot no. of exposition. Oh no. Everything uh, is scripted. Everything you hear is scripted. So yeah. the first nine minutes is clearly scripted, but then okay. even, even the commentary after that, oh, it's totally scripted. Ken. It's fully scripted. I, you know, I, I work dialogue is one of the biggest Achilles heels for writers that I work with, especially in nonfiction oh. memoir. They want to do a lot of just descriptive paragraphs of either telling you how to do things or telling you about their lives. And I'm like, give us some room to breathe. Like, don't tell us what the conversation was, be the conversation, like write the conversation. And so I love any model that's just dialogue because when it's oh, done really well, it's a very, it's a, it's a high skill for a writer because a lot of writing that you read from an, from someone that hasn't been edited or as a new writer, it's very like expository. And you have to say, look, read that out loud. Is that really how people talk? I mean, come on, because people actually don't say a lot. When we write dialogue, we think people are saying a lot more than people really say, which takes us back to the listening piece. If you really listen to people, they don't really say a lot. Often, yes. Yeah, they really don't. And we make up all this stuff we think people say in our heads as writers. And that's great for the imaginary journey and for character building. But when it comes time to writing dialogue, it's more of like a, it's an essence of what they're saying. And it's often an essence, as you know, as a coach of what not is being said. Well, and look, I grew up, you know, in high school, I read plays as literature. And then I went mm. to Juilliard where, you know, I mean, we, we learned to think about text in a very particular way. But then I came to Hollywood where it was like, you know, some writers cared what you said and you had to say the line the way it was written, no matter what and whatever. I'm used to dialogue. I understand dialogue. I yeah. mean, and I know, and I know shitty dialogue. Pardon me. I know when, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes, I, I right, do too. I get, right, it you, makes you, me you, angry. It makes me actually angry. Right. But, <laughs> and then by the way, think about my job where I listen to people all day long for a living. So I'm really used to how people talk. So mm -hmm. getting to write that for me, is actually pretty easy. I know how to do it. It's in me. Right. Right. I get that sense. I absolutely get that sense. So like, have you ever thought about bringing acting or directing into your coaching at any point in time? You know, sometimes coaches get an idea with like a, an angle. Well, this is, I know this is not what you meant, but I started my coaching as a presentation skills coach makes oh, a lot okay. of sense, right? Like yeah. helping people perform, right? Helping people, right. whatever. So right. I still do a lot of that. And it feels very often very theater-based. Mm. 
right? I mean, yeah, you're putting on a little 18 minute play. It's like, let's get the play right. Sure. So, so that's it. But I know that's, that's not really what you meant with your question. Mm -hmm. Right, right. What I meant was like, doing any role playing with people in the coaching sessions or having them sort of act out what it is that they'd want to do. Cause I heard that in one of your, in the, in the episode I listened to. Huh. That's interesting. So I will often get people talking and we will have an exchange like, okay, I'm going to be your boss. You mm. do it. You pitch it right let's have it or by the way i'm going to be you and you be your boss oh wow yeah right and we'll do That's that right right yeah sure so just to get them thinking but these aren't like scenes that go on for 20 minutes you know I mean, this <laughs> right. is you know this is a little <laughs> thought exercise so right but that's so much fun though and that brings so much out for people and that's definitely a skill not everybody can do that right you have well, to have an acting background to do that i am actually quite shy about asking people to perform I am, I know people, I know coaches who use improv in their work. Really? And I, and I just, I am shy about it. It's not that I can't, but I don't. So interesting. That, Even with your interacting. I'm sorry, the little role play that I modeled for you a second ago doesn't feel like theater to me. It feels like um, giving them an experience with, that they can learn from and reflect on. It feels very much like a coaching tool to me. Okay. That's you know? the difference. Right. Right. So let's talk about a book. So I think I did uh, get you to tell me you haven't written one, right? So any book in the future or? Not for me. Tell me why. Well, a couple reasons. Where do I want to spend my energy? I can't imagine spending my energy on a book. That's number one. Number two is one of my best friends for wow, 30 years is Lois Frankel, who over time wrote she's probably written a dozen books, one of which changed her life, was a huge bestseller. And I watched that ride and I was part of that ride. I'm in that book. It's like fantastic, right? Like That's I'm amazing. thrilled for her. Right. And it did not change her life afterwards. It, it didn't, it wasn't a stair step. It's just weird. It makes the publishing industry look so unkind. That's mm. what I'm saying. So I okay. look at that story of Lois's and I just go, Ooh, that's like being back in show business. I don't want to go back there. Ah. Uh, so those two things around really, where do I want to spend my time? And number two, do I want to swim in that pool? I don't think so. And Kim, I'm far enough along in my career. I don't need a book. Got it. You know, I, that's I, I don't good. Want to, I'm that's as busy good. as I want to be. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. I mean, here's one thing I say to people when they say, oh God, I don't know why I want to write a book. I wish that I didn't want to write a book. And I'd say, look, <laughs> they go, why me? And I said, there are millions of people that absolutely do not want to write a book. You are not one of them. <laughs> so right. guess what until you write that book you are going to be in torture so let's just get it done and you're one of those people and, 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 and you're and you're one of those people tom and that's that's you're a perfect example now i can point people to my podcast and say you know i told you about those people that never want to write a book go listen to my podcast on tom because he's one of them and he has good reasons why and for a lot of people even the horror stories of the publishing industry is not going to keep them from writing a book. For sure. But look, it's, in, I, it's in their heart. You know, it's in their heart and it can't, and it won't go. It won't leave. Kim, I cannot tell you how many people said to me, don't be an actor. 
Uh, and I and I was like, you know, I mean, really, truly, before I went to Juilliard, people said that. At Juilliard, people said that. After Juilliard, people said that. I mean, and that was just the beginning of my career. And, you know, but people were always like, oh, my God, it's horrible. Like, why do you do that? And I, for, until I could give it up, yeah, you know, I was in it. I It was like my identity. I was Tom the actor. So I'm yeah. totally with it. Like, people want to swim there. Sure. Go ahead. Good luck. Mm -hmm. I, I hope it works for you. <sighs> Exactly. And, and, and I would be out of a job if people didn't want to write books anymore. So I am all for, you know, supporting anyone, but this gives me a great segue for you. And this, this will be kind of where we're going to wrap up the interview. So what comes next for you? I mean, where do you, how far forward do you like look in your career? Like you just said, you've, you've done it all. You, you have a successful business, you have a successful podcast, you're, you're happy, you're balanced, but you got another 10, 15, 20 years in you. What are, what are you going to do? Yeah. I am asking myself that question all the time. I'll tell you something that happened this year that was really interesting, which was two months of the year. I didn't work. Oh, I love that. Well, and it was not a plan going into oh. the year, right? Okay. It, it, it happened. And by the way, it wasn't bad. There were no, it was no disasters or anything. Right. But I look at that and I go, could I do that with the intention next year? Could I work nice. 10 months next year? Could I? I bet I could. So that's actually what's in the future is seeing how I could really build a whole different part of my life. And that sounds really exciting to me. That sounds so exciting. And and I couldn't agree with you more. I am one of those people that I've been working my whole life since I was 13 years old. And, you know, I love the days that I literally did, like don't work. I, there's rarely a day that I'm doing nothing. I always have a million things to do. But the days that I don't work, I relish those. And that's a change in the last couple of years because I used to, you know, work with my identity. So now it's like, I don't want to go to, like, I don't want to worry. So I having, I'm having the same thought process as you. Like, what happens if I could do all that in four days instead yeah. of five days? And then you're like, what am I going to do on that open day? And then you just wait because something's going to appear. <laughs> yes. yes. It could indeed. be more, it could be more finches and corn snakes. We don't know. <laughs> well, it was really lovely having on your, having you on the show. Thank you so much. And you, what fun. Thank you. You've been listening to, you should write a book about that. If you enjoyed our episode, tell a friend to listen, subscribe and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.